0: Strong Tower. It's good to see everybody. I wish the kids were still in here. I could tell them, great job, but we'll have to tell them later. They were having a good time. I don't know if you saw their faces, if you were sitting in the back, but they were having a good time. It was great. Great to see their joy. Uh, if it's your first time with us today, we're glad you could be with us again. We want to welcome you. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, everyone, we're going to be in Matthew chapter verses 1 through 12 as we continue our series for Advent. As you turn there, just another reminder to invite folks for Saturday night for Christmas Eve service. Uh, We will not have live stream that night, so uh, we would love to have you in person here with us if you're able to make it and bring some folks with you, okay? Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, going to verse 12, hear the reading of God's word. gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. Amen. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, The Humble Desire, The Humble Desire. Let's pray before we begin. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this season, this season that is such a season of rejoicing, but also a season of tension. Whereas we celebrate and we rejoice, we also long for what's to come. We can at the same time lament that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so we celebrate that you have come, but we are looking forward to the day when you come again, when you make all things right, when our singing will be full of truths that are all here right now. Not anything to look forward to, but only all that we have. God, may that day come soon. Oh, come, Emmanuel the joy of our soul. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You may be seated. We often don't know what lurks below the surface, do we? In 2007, I believe it was the month of April, there was this massive earthquake that shook the Solomon Islands right off the coast of Australia. And as often happens with that kind of major disturbance, uh, it shook up the area around it. There, there was uh, aftershocks, there was a tsunami that came, and, and there were many things that happened in that area just to the, the natural uh, surrounding region. But one of the things that no one expected was what came out of the bottom of the ocean. In fact, uh, one of the things that, that was revealed that was sitting underneath The surface was a World War II torpedo boat that was actually in almost perfect condition sitting at the bottom of the ocean for over 60 years. All of the bombs on the boat were still active. They had to actually call in a bomb squad to detonate these bombs safely to make sure that no one was harmed because this boat just came out of nowhere floating up to the top of the surface. What I found out as I was hearing this story was actually that there is over 80%, listen to this, over 80% of the bottom of the ocean is completely unexplored. Can you imagine that? 80% of our ocean, we have no idea what is at the bottom. And so what they say is there's actually probably... Many more items, lots of war wreckage over, the, over that whole area in the Solomon Islands that is just sitting there, down there waiting to be revealed, waiting to be exposed if there's another shaking. It's waiting. Now, what's interesting is the song we just sang with the cute little faces with the kids, right? Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The traditional version of that song actually has another verse that we didn't sing that is, uh, it has this phrase, This phrase is, come, desire of nations, come. And it's it's from an Old Testament prophet, Haggai, who prophesied in the time where Israel was returning from exile. They're coming back into the land. They're trying to rebuild everything. And one of the things that they rebuild was the temple. And as they're rebuilding the temple, some of the people who were around or, or heard stories about the glory of the previous temple are starting to grieve Because the new temple is not as glorious as the old temple. And so now they're starting to grieve this process. And Haggai, this prophet, he says this in chapter 2, or God says it through him. God says, and I will shake all the nations and the desire, listen to this, the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill this house with glory. He says to them, don't worry about this physical temple. I'm going to bring something even more glorious. And when I do, this something is actually going to be a someone. It will be the desire of all the nations. And he, this Messiah, is going to shake up everything. When Jesus comes, nothing is going to be like it was before. It's going to shake up all the stuff that's below the surface because God is going to get below the surface. He's going to get below what you see, below what you experience on your everyday life. He's going to get down to the surface, and when he gets down to the bottom, it's going to be more glorious than anything else you could imagine. See, we're continuing our Advent series today, and we've been looking at Advent as a season where we're both celebrating and we're waiting. We're celebrating that Jesus has come, we're celebrating his birth and the first coming, but we're also waiting and longing for the day when he will come again. And so Advent lives in this in-between, that we're, we're living in the celebration, but we're also hopeful that there's something even greater. And this season we've been looking at a theme of humility, and how humility is found in all of these classic stories of Jesus' birth, and humility, if anything, gets below the surface. Right, Humility is, is this characteristic, this virtue that isn't just high and lifted up and, and something that you see on the outside and very public and, 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 and pronounced, but humility is actually down at the bottom. Humility is this thing deep in our hearts that God wants to cultivate. God wants to get below what you see down to the depths of your heart. So how does the gospel do that? How does Jesus coming get to the bottom of our heart, below all the the surface-level pride? That's what I want to look at today. First, we have to see that the gospel reveals that we have a desire for the king. A desire for the king. This is the first point. Look at verse 1 with me as we jump into the story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now pause there for a second because sometimes we get so familiar with these Christmas stories that you miss the incredible nature of what's actually happening here. Because sometimes we get so familiar with these figurines in our house, these little men that are sitting on the mantle or maybe hanging on your Christmas tree, and, and we call them wise men or magi, and, and there's been traditions that have, that have kind of blossomed out of the texture of the scriptures, and some traditions have these men being kings because of the type of gifts that they bring. These are the type of gifts that maybe kings would have. And then other traditions have these men maybe being three men, because there's three different gifts. So maybe there's three men. But both of those things are not actually in the text. We don't know how many men there were. We don't know a lot about their background. All Matthew tells us is that they were magi. And even the term magi, we know very little about what it means, the best we can gather, is that they were some kind of astrologers from, some, from somewhere far east. Matthew doesn't even tell us. So they were men who were seeking out the stars. They, they, they were people who were studying the stars and seeking out the meaning of these stars. But what's interesting to me is these men were not the type of men you might expect. These, these were not Jewish men. These were Gentiles. They, they were people who were not familiar with the scriptures. These, these were not uh, orthodox men. These were what you would call pagans. They, they were worshiping other gods, probably. These were not people who were at the top of society's social structure. These were people who were pushed to the margins, interested in astrology. These were the last people on earth you would think that Matthew would open the gospel with as the people who first come to Jesus, but they are. Why is that? It's very intentional. God is doing something in this story. God is showing that the nations are coming to the Christ. God is saying that just as Haggai had promised, when the Christ comes, the desire of nations is going to come. And so all the desires in the nations that are far off, all the people that no one would expect are going to flock to him because he's their desire. All of their desires. Listen, every single desire finds its fulfillment in the desire for Jesus. Jesus, this desire of all nations, Lord, make me holy, but not yet. That was the prayer of a young Augustine. Maybe you've heard that name before. He prayed that prayer, Lord, make me holy, but not yet. You ever prayed something like that? Augustine was a young man who in the fourth century was growing up in northern Africa, and he grew up with a believing mother, but he wanted nothing to do with her Christian faith. And so as soon as he got old enough, Augustine decided he's going to run away from home and, and go to school and live a wild party in life. And so Augustine did just that. He moves away and he chases after women and he chases after pleasure and he chases after everything he can find that can try to give him some, some kind of high, some kind of pleasure that would maybe uh, take away the pain that he's feeling and give him a sense of joy. And he would go from one woman to the next woman to the next woman. He was a fourth century player, Augustine. And when none of the parties and none of the women would do it for Augustine, he decided he was going to go to the schools. And so he went to every philosophy he could find and he's studying the books and he's studying the religions and he's trying to find something that would answer all his questions and nothing would do it. Until one day Augustine sat down and he started to read the Bible that his mother read. And he opens up to the book of Romans, and he reads the book of Romans. And while reading the book of Romans, Augustine, who would later be St. Augustine, comes to faith in Jesus, and he would become one of the most influential people in all of church history and even Western society. And this is what he would write in his confessions. He would say this famously. He would say, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in you. He knew that from personal experience. He knew that he had searched everywhere he could go. And and he, he tried to have every experience he could possibly have that would maybe fill his heart. And it was restless after restless after restless until he found Jesus. See, there was a greater desire beneath all of his other desires. I want to tell you this morning that all of us are searching for Jesus, but not all of us know it. All of us are searching for Jesus. Pick whatever the desire is that you have in your life. You are like the Magi. You are coming searching for the Christ. You are looking for him. I mean, pick the issue. In our day, a lot of folks in the culture, we are looking for justice. Amen. We we want to see that here at Strong Tower. We want to see justice roll down in our education system, in our judicial system, in all the different areas of life. We want to see justice. But listen. Where does that desire come from? That desire comes from the God who is the just one. That your heart, he has designed your heart to want him. To want his justice. To want him who who is that that you desire. And so if you get that desire without getting God, you're going to continue to be restless. If you get justice without Jesus, you'll be Restless. Or maybe for some of us, it's purpose in life, right? We're going from one job to the next job, to this career, to that career. We're trying to figure out and how to answer the question, how do I make meaning out of my life? How, what, what has God put me in this planet for? What is my purpose? Where do I fit? And for many of us, we're, we're still trying to figure out that answer. And, and so we're searching, going from one thing to the next to the next. And what God is trying to open your eyes to is to see that your purpose is in him. No job that you get is going to fulfill that. No role in the church or no place at your workplace, no, no opportunity that you're waiting for is going to change the fact that your heart desires Him. Him. It's Him. And so it could be any of our desires. Our desire for love, for hoping a relationship will fulfill, our desire for influence that we're hoping a promotion for, will fulfill. Whatever it is, we all are craving for the king you're searching for God and you may not even know it you're searching for him in all the desires no matter what you accomplish no matter who you sleep with no matter what new house you buy or car you lease whatever you have it will remain restless until you rest in him that's what's happening here we're satisfied in him alone But sometimes when he comes, we're more disturbed than desiring. And this is what happens next. The second point is disturbed by the king. Look at verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now this is fascinating to me. Herod, as, as history has called him, is Herod the Great. Right? He, he would go around telling all the Jewish people that he ruled over that you would call me king of the Jews. That, that was the title he preferred from them that, jo, that uh, Josephus tells us from history. And so we know that this title has baggage for Herod. This is what Herod called himself, king of the Jews. And now Herod hears that there's somebody the Magi is saying is born king of the Jews, you hear that? He, he's not even going to grow up to be king. He is now king. He's born king of the Jews. And Herod hears that, and the Bible says he's disturbed. He's troubled. The, the word there means there's, there's something going on in on his heart that you, you, don't, you don't feel good. There's something that's wrong here. And so he gets frustrated. He gets flustered. He gets angry because there can't be another king. What's fascinating is not just him, but all of Jerusalem, the Bible says, is troubled by this news. There's a new king who's a threat. Now, Herod gathers together all the religious leaders, and he finds out, you know, where is this king going to be? Who is this Christ, this Messiah? And he says, where where is it going to happen? And they say Bethlehem. And what's fascinating here to me is that he should have known that. Herod was half-Jewish. He grew up around the scriptures. He should have known this was a common knowledge thing of where the Messiah was going to be born that they were all looking forward to. And so what you see here is Herod had no use for religious things until it became a threat to his life. Herod should have known these things, should have been interested in God, but he had no interest until all of a sudden it was a threat to him. Why? Because Jesus divides. I don't know if you knew this, but the title Christ is not Jesus's last name. It's actually a title of of political influence. It's a title that means the anointed one. It's a title that implies you are the king. And so what he's saying is Herod is panicking because there's a new king and it's not Herod. See, Jesus is a threat to our own kingdom. To our own rule and reign. A few years ago, uh, Burger King expanded uh, its its fast food offerings in Belgium, and uh, at the time, they had no Burger King restaurants there, and so they're expanding and trying to get the word out that there's all these restaurants that are coming. And so uh, the king of Belgium, his name is Philippe, and and they ran this online marketing campaign that was basically a, a survey, and I thought it was brilliant because this is what they did in the survey. They said. Okay, there are two kings and one crown. Who would you choose to be king? Burger King or the Belgian king, Philippe? And when you fill out the survey, if you choose Burger King, it cheers for you and celebrates, yeah, you're smart, you picked the right king. But if you pick Philippe, it says, are you sure he's not going to make fries for you? And then if you click yeah uh, no there or yes there that you want king philippe it goes to another screen that has only one option that you pick burger king and so it made the king uh, frustrated and and word got out that this was going viral and so they decided to tell burger king you need to shut this down and burger king of course shut it down but one thing they could agree on was this there could only be one king there could only be one king And that's what this Christmas story is saying to us. As Herod is troubled, because it's the same feeling that all of us get when Jesus enters into our life, and we realize I can't be king anymore. Because the problem is, I want to be king. I want to call the shots in my life. I want to make sure I have a say. I want to make sure that I can, uh, you know, do this and do that and make my own decisions and make my own rules and my own way of doing things. I want to be the king. I want to be in control. That's what the very human heart, or the very nature of our human heart, is that we desire that rule and reign. It it is the nature of our sin. In fact, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, you go all the way back to the very first sin, what was Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve? You can be God. See, the very first temptation is the temptation that's underneath all of our temptations. The temptation of sin is that I can be God. God. I can be king. I can be in control. I can run my own life. That is the nature of sin. And so when we have influence, when we have power, wherever it is in our life, we will do whatever it takes to try to maintain that control. And if we don't, we will do whatever it takes to try to gain that control. Because we want to be king. See, the deception of sin is that there can be two kings. God can be king and you can be king. That, that's the deception of sin. That there can actually be two crowns. I can do what I want to do and God can do what he wants to do. And we can live our separate lives and, and we don't have to come together. And his rule and reign isn't over my life. That's the deception of sin. It's what it means to turn against him. And what's fascinating here is, again, Matthew says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed. Which is interesting because you would think Herod, the one in power, would be disturbed. But the people below him, who are being oppressed by this Roman ruler, well, why would they be disturbed? They, they should celebrate that, that God has come to set them free, but they are just as troubled. Why is that? Because sometimes where you are in bondage is more comfortable than the idea of freedom. Sometimes what you know in your bondage, what you know in your trouble, what you know is more comfortable than the idea of being free, especially if freedom means that I'm no longer king either. See, what Jesus is, is Jesus is a threat. Jesus is a disturbance. Jesus is a troublemaker where in our own sin and suffering in this world, we we tremble that Jesus might come into our life and reorder things, shake things up, call us to a different life because we want to be the king. And yet every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, listen, every time we say, your kingdom come, your will be done, we are asking Jesus to come into our life to rule and reign. We are asking Jesus to come into my life so I can lay down my desires. I can lay down what I think should happen. I can lay down what I desire and want. I can lay it all down at the king's feet and say, here it is. Here it is. You be king. You rule and reign. And that kind of choice, right? It's a choice. Who's going to be king, Jesus or me? Who will rule over every area of my life? That kind of choice is where we go from being disturbed to devotion. And this is the last point, devoted to the king. Look at verse 8 with me. It goes on to say, And he sent them, that's, that's Herod, sent the magi to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now this, this is interesting because you know Herod is lying, right? I don't know if anybody else knew it in the room, but we can look at it and tell. Herod, he don't want to go worship the child. He wants to find out where this kid's going to be so he can take him out. So he sends the Magi off to Bethlehem to go find the child. And they follow Herod's order, and they go looking following this star, and the star settles down on this tiny house in the black midnight of Bethlehem. And this is what it says happens in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Do you see the contrast that Matthew's setting up? You have Herod on one side who's saying, I am disturbed by this king because I don't want him to enter into my life. I want to push him away and I want to be king. And then you have the Magi on the other side who say, We want to bow down and give all of our treasures, all of our desires, everything we've worked so hard for, we give it to this king. You see the difference between the one who is disturbed and the one who is devoted. They lay down their desires. See, worship lays down a lesser desire for the greatest desire. That's what's happening here. See, the title, The King of the Jews, it appears again at the end of Matthew's gospel. And I I love how Matthew really bookends his whole gospel with this theme. At the beginning, you see it. And then at the end, it picks up this same theme. And when it comes, it's actually where Jesus is on trial. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, he's been turned over to the Roman soldiers, and they take him to trial before the governor Pilate, and Pilate has heard that Jesus has been accused of claiming to be the king of the Jews. That, that's the accusation against him, which again is interesting because the Jews knew that they couldn't get Jesus arrested if they turned him in for being the son of God. Because in Rome, there's lots of gods. You you can claim to be a god because there's 1,700 other gods. But if you claim to be king, that's a threat. If you claim to have power over the Roman Empire, you are somebody who needs to be taken out. And so they tell Pilate, this man claims to be king of the Jews. And Pilate steps in front of Jesus and he begins to question him. In this famous scene, he says to him, Are you king of the Jews? And I love Jesus' wise and witty response. He says, who's asking, you or someone else? Jesus is cutting right to the chase. Jesus is trying to get to Pilate's heart. He's saying, Pilate, you think this is just a normal trial, but I'm here to talk to you. And then Jesus says to him, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate says, so you are a king. I mean, you, you have a kingdom. You must be a king. And this is... What Jesus says in response, you say that I'm a king. I've come to bear witness to the truth. I've come to bear witness to the truth. See, Pilate is now on the ropes. He's realizing that Jesus might actually be who they say he is. He might actually be not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the whole world. And so if he is, that means I am not king. I mean, this guy is above Herod. He he is the governor of the region. He is the king of that whole area. And if Jesus is, that means he's not. And so what does Pilate say? Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? It was Pilate's way of saying, you're not going to king me. You, I will remain where I am. You have come too far. He pushes Jesus away, sends him to be crucified, and crown, they crown him with thorns. They clothe him with a bloody robe. They nail him to a wooden throne in the shape of a cross. And what do the soldiers write on the sign above his head? King of the Jews. The crowds mocked him in unison. Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. This king would be like no other king as he hung on a cross. This king would endure the shame of our sin from birth to death. This king would prove weakness was more powerful than strength. This king would conquer sin and death through death itself. This king would tear down barriers by being torn apart himself. This king would die for the enemies who denied him. This king is unlike any other king. The question today for all of us is who do you say he is? Who do you say this king is? This king who was born in Bethlehem, he wants our whole hearts. But who do you say he is? The king born in a manger, he wants our full devotion. But who do you say he is? This king who came to take our place in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he wants our greatest desire. But who do you say he is? See, the gospel says there's a new king in our life. There's a new king in our family. There's a new king in our community. There's a new king in our hearts. There's a new king. But will we surrender to him? That's the question. Are are we going to move from being disturbed by his presence or devoted to this king who has come to save us? See, the beauty of this king is that he would lay down his life for his own enemies. He would come live the life that we're called to live and die the death that we deserve to die so that we could be with him. The beauty of the gospel is that the way we receive this king into our life is just like the Magi. We only have to bow down. And when we bow down and we give our desires over to him, he becomes and fills us with the greatest desire. Like when the Magi give their little gifts, these little trinkets, they get Jesus even more glorious, even more beautiful because they have said, I've laid down my little things for the greatest desire. Jesus is mine, King. This is what it means to believe. This is the good news. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you that as as Jesus comes into our life, he shakes things up, he reorders things so that we can humble ourselves before him. And Lord Jesus, as we come to you to bow down and offer our desires, our treasures, the things in our life that we've been holding on to, that we get disturbed when you call them out. We get disturbed when you question them. We get disturbed when you convict us. Give us the eyes of faith to believe that laying those things down as valuable as they may seem to us are nothing in comparison to what we take up that we get the desire of all nations we receive the greatest desire we could ever imagine the thing the very thing that we're seeking in all those little things that never fulfill us never satisfy us we finally are satisfied in you god i pray for us in that whether we've been believers for decades or are yet to believe, may we know that to be true, that you are the one who satisfies, you are the one who is worthy. And so may we bow down with exceeding joy, with great joy, knowing that you are worthy. We pray in Christ's name for his glory and our good. Amen. Let's stand to our feet as we sing.